Hey everybody, Magnus here. Look, it's obviously time for a little bit of tough love here. I've been online for a pretty long time now, and I can remember a time when the internet had to, be sh had to struggle to be taken seriously as a medium for disseminating information. Now, I know, I know, I know, it's, it's strange to think of such a time now, but I can assure you that it did exist. There was a time when being on the internet really was a step away from being published in a tabloid insofar as credibility is concerned. Obviously, all that's changed. And while I most assuredly do wish that the people who made fun of me for using the internet way back when would be permanently banned from using it now, because that's right, good luck making a living without the internet these days, assholes. That's just not going to happen. And that's fine. I've made my peace with that. The Internet's grown and matured, and it's now the platform for knowledge and information. So, of course, a bunch of just fucking bored, dried-up, middle-aged women who don't get fucked right by their husbands anymore popularize this whole clickbait bullshit from BuzzFeed and all those other intellectual black holes, and they've successfully turned Facebook into a fucking miasma of all these shock headlines. And ever since then, it's, it's become this just fucking Frankenstein that's grown out of control. Now everybody's doing it. My entire Facebook news feed right now is nothing but fucking clickbait. The Netflix Daredevil show couldn't use this character because Marvel had other plans. This is what Coca-Cola does to your insides. You'll shit your pants when you see the tricks this kitten can perform. Here are 10 underrated comic book movies. Number four is going to make you want to shave your head and join a cult. You just won't believe what this wacky politician had to say on national fucking TV. People, have some respect for yourselves. Or, or I, I, I guess lacking that, at least show respect to others by not sharing idiotic bullshit like this. Nobody cares about five fucking strange ways you can use an empty milk carton to store a bunch of stupid bullshit you shouldn't own in the first place. I'm sick to fuck of seeing this crap all over my Facebook. It's killing originality online and fucking baby steps. Stop fucking doing this. I swear to God, the next one of you people who does this, I'm going to fucking unfriend you. Got it? And I'm going to contact every podcaster I know and tell him to unfriend you too. Stop fucking doing this. Now enjoy the rest of the episode. Hey, your attention, please. This is a piece of art. This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. What to do with Bunny to conceal his own magnet form? Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Hello, and 
welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm smoking right now. A lot of people say, you shouldn't smoke and podcast at the same time, it's dangerous, it's a bad influence for kids, and all that shit. And I say, fuck you. I mean, nobody talks about comics, movies, and TV shows like I do. Stick around and see for yourself. So, you get badass comic book discussions, and I get to smoke. It's a fair trade. Anyway, this is my latest in my Smallville retrospective series. In case it wasn't obvious, I loves me some Smallville, and so every eighth episode, I spend the time talking about it. Smallville is my favorite TV show in history, you see. Plus, it's, it's also my favorite incarnation of Superman, apart from the comics. Smallville's numero uno, as far as I'm concerned. Now, telling people that is hazardous to your health. Or can be, anyway. Some folks think Christopher Reeve deserves the top spot on everybody's list. Just because. Now, don't misunderstand me. I dig Chris Reeve as Superman. That was my gateway into Superman when I was a kid. I love Reeve, but he's not at the top of my list. My favorite live-action Superman is a never-ending battle between Tom Welling and Henry Cavill. But, you know what? None of that's my point. Time was, I used every eighth episode of my podcast to talk about Star Wars. Just ask either of the two true freaks or Scott Rifen from Dinner for Geeks, if you don't believe me. But, all that Star Wars stuff got kind of stale after a while. I mean, when you come down to it, I just didn't have as much to say about Star Wars as I originally thought. That alone was hazardous to Star Wars' long-term prospects as my 8th episode special. But there was another problem. I realized that setting up a designated Star Wars episode on a periodic basis was... maybe a little too similar to what uh, the two true freaks do with their Star Wars Monthly Monday episodes. Or... It seemed too similar to me, for my tastes. And, obviously, my opinion is what counts the most. But when I first established the format of this podcast, of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, honestly, all I really wanted to do was just develop something that seemed cool to me. I didn't really consider things beyond that. It became a consideration, though, when I was still on Libsyn, but it bloomed into full-blown fucking panic when I joined the Two True Freaks podcast network back, way back in, what, well, like November of 2013? Ah, fuck, I, it was a long time ago. Anyway, in fact, you could say that my participating in the Two True Freaks podcast network was pretty much the beginning of the end of my eighth episode Star Wars shows. Most of the time... It's a matter of simple etiquette not to offend your host. That kind of goes double for me, though, since the freaks are the ones doing me a favor by providing me with web space to hang my hat. Seems the least I could do was avoid even the appearance of ripping off their ideas. Anyway, this is all a roundabout way of saying that I made the decision to cancel these Star Wars weekend shows that I'd been doing after a while. I just, like I said, wasn't as passionate about it as I first thought, and let's 
not overlook the obvious. I wanted to stay in Chris and Scott's good graces. Now, this isn't suggesting that I won't ever talk about Star Wars again on this show. Not saying that. In fact, I'm saying that I'm certain that I will talk about it again at some point. All I'm saying is that Star Wars won't be a fixture of my show's permanent format anymore. That's it. Anyway, so that's that stuff. Now, like I said, I'm smoking. Just a sec. Now, having said all that, something had to take the place of Star Wars. You know what I mean? And I remembered that when I first started the show, I'd gotten considerable attention, beginning with my very first episode, because, as I said a while ago, I defended Smallville from a bunch of meanie head attacks from a bunch of meanie heads. So, started thinking to myself, what if I half-ass revisit that idea by analyzing Smallville? Get it? Rather than just defensive stuff, actually go on the offense and show just how badass Smallville actually is. Talk up all of Smallville's virtues and strong points. All the shit that I love about the show, in other words. Now, nobody's suggesting that Smallville has absolutely no flaws. Or I'm not, anyway. I'll be the first to admit that Smallville, in fact, has several flaws and scabs and generally things that maybe could have been done better. The people who say otherwise... Well, honestly, the people who say otherwise kind of scare me. And people, they're out there. But beyond all that stuff, it always irritated the fuck right out of me that so few people saw the merits of Smallville. What I'm saying here is that Smallville just doesn't deserve the shit-talking it gets from people on Facebook and message boards and stuff like that, especially since most of those people really ought to fucking know better. And look, if Smallville just isn't your brand of vodka, whatever, that's fine, we're cool. But there's a faction of supposed fans out there who never miss a chance to argue that Smallville somehow pisses on everything that makes Superman awesome. Well, if your sole litmus test for that is how well Smallville fits in with the Reeve movies, yeah, I can see where Smallville just might piss in your cornflakes. If your Superman fandom is restricted to and predicated on the Reeve movies, I can totally see where Smallville just isn't your blend, especially after the first season. But if you got sucked up in, in, into that hate machine and never really gave Smallville a chance... These retrospectives may be just what the doctor ordered for you. Yeah, who knows? You may come away from these things as a fan of the series. That's a theory, at least. Now I pause to have another drag off my cigarette. Now... When I was first hatching these Smallville retrospectives, I seriously considered doing commentaries for every single episode of the show. But I eventually counted toes and realized that would mean having to record something like 200-plus commentaries. Two. Hundred. Now, as awesome as I am, I just don't have enough time for that. 
And let's cut the bullshit for a minute. A commentary for all 22 episodes of the dreaded season four. It might very well end with me drinking myself to death by the 15th episode that season. Jeez, the dreaded season four sucks. But fuck me, I'm getting closer to that all the time. Ah, well. Courage. And alcohol. Yes, lots of alcohol. But that's all in the future. What I'm driving at in the here and now is that these little 8th episode retrospectives are a pretty good way for me to knock out a handful of Smallville episodes in one go as I bash my way through the entire series. Trust me, I've got enough shit here to last for years worth of 8th episode shows. So, all in all, switching the format uh, for these 8th episodes from Star Wars to Smallville seemed like a pretty good compromise. As I go through all this stuff, the idea here is to take a sort of holistic approach to my analysis. Surprisingly enough, not least of which surprising to me, I've largely stuck to this, but the notion here is to tie ongoing subplots and other continuity nuggets in subsequent seasons back to what's come before as I go through all this stuff. This is primarily because Smallville's continuity is incredibly fucking underrated. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, people just refuse to acknowledge how much time, effort, and planning went into each Smallville story. Because of that, I don't think Smallville ever got enough credit for having good continuity. So... One potential outcome here is that I just might set the record straight when it comes to Smallville's continuity. There you have it. Now, last time I finished my remarks by talking about Smallville Season 3, Episode 5, Perry. That means one thing. It's time for a break. I'll be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville Season 3, beginning with Episode number 6, Relic, after these messages. the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Golden Age Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, 
searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil. Blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster. But you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil... You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Hi, this is Erica Durant. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. Okay, I'm back now, and here we are. First up, uh, this episode is number six, Relic. This was pretty heavily promoted when it first aired. I suppose that the WB network knew they had a firecracker on their hands. And you can't say it didn't work either, because Relic scored 6.7 million viewers. Now, just to put that in perspective... Exile, the season premiere this season, had 6.9 million viewers. The natural tendency is for numbers to slack off noticeably between uh, premieres and finales. The fact that Relic was so close to Exile's numbers should tell you something. 6.7 to Exile's 6.9 million. That's a lot. Anyway, the pitch for Relic is actually pretty simple. Lana's great-uncle Dexter is old and decrepit. He maintains he's innocent of killing Lana's great-aunt Louise, and he's got some surprisingly convincing evidence on his side. All of this is a device to facilitate a shitload of of, uh, flashbacks to Smallville, circa 1961, where Tom Welling plays Jarrell and Kristen Kruk plays Louise McCallum. Honestly, there's really not very much about Relic that doesn't fit into the deeper themes and implications section of my notes. In my view, what Relic really accomplishes is parallel many of Jarrell's conflicts and struggles with his own father over and against Clark's struggles with Jarrell himself. The conflict between destiny and free will, duty and personal desire. Clark asks of Jonathan the same question the viewer is supposed to ask. Specifically, is there more to Jarrell than we first thought? Now, the answer to that is a little complicated. It's also not coming anytime soon, so we're not going to dwell on it too much here, other than to say that it's something you should all keep in mind as the series progresses. Just something to put in the background, questions to ask yourself. Why is young Jarrell? So different from the artificial intelligence Jarrell, who's always pushing Clark around. The other thing Relic uh, shows, by way of demonstration, is that Clark isn't the first Kryptonian to visit Earth. Now, that was suggested by all the Kawachi Cave paintings from Season 2 and also this season, but 
This is the first time it was made explicit. In fact, Jarrell's visit suggests that Kryptonians have been visiting Earth for quite some time now. Not only was Clark not the first, but Jarrell probably wasn't the first either. Now, where the rubber meets the road on this is that back in season, uh, season two, the episode Skinwalkers, I mentioned that the mere existence of the Kowachi Caves and their references to Krypton and Kryptonians suggests that Kryptonians have visited Earth before. This is what I was talking about when I was going through Season 2 ages ago. Another thing, though, is Relic suggests that the Kents didn't randomly find Clark on the day of the first meteor shower. Instead, it strongly suggested that Jarrell singled the Kents out specifically because of his experiences during this episode, during Relic. He chose the Kents to be Clark's adopted family. Now, again, this calls more of Jarrell's character into question. Episodes in the distant future are going to deepen and then resolve this, but for right now, I really can't say too much more without spoiling shit. Just, all I ask is that you just remember that we haven't heard the last of this. This plot point, I gotta say, seriously fucking bothered a lot of fans when, when Relic premiered. Many of them preferred the concept of Jarrell randomly sending Clark into the unknown reaches of space then Clark's ship luckily finding its way to Earth, and then Jonathan and Martha Kent luckily discovering his ship, and then luckily raising Clark as their own because it was their idea. Relic pretty much pisses all over that concept. There was nothing random about J Jonathan and Martha finding Clark. Jarrell sent Clark to them, and that's that. Now, I've said in several, uh, several other episodes that there are a lot of level... Well, specifically three levels of interpretation when it comes to big iconic characters and their histories, their mythos. It came up for sure when I talked about Superman Earth 1 Volume 1, if you want to dig that show out of mothballs, but I think it may have actually popped up a few other times too. But basically, it goes a little something-something like this. At the very bottom of the list, there's tradition. This is how elements of the Superman legend have been usually done, or how they've I don't know, maybe most often been done lately. These things are ripe for the plucking because tradition was made to be broken. A good example is Superman's first public rescue being Lois Lane. People, that's hardly fucking bulletproof. A lot of depictions of Superman's debut feature him rescuing uh, Lois, but a lot of them don't. Things like this are nowhere near absolute. The next level up is canon. These elements of Superman lore are slightly more set in stone. An example of that is Clark's ship arrived on Earth when he was a baby or a toddler. Um, or let me think. Or another one might be that when Clark moves to Metropolis, he usually gets a job at the Daily Planet pretty much right away. The first major exception to that that I know of came in 2011 when the New 52 got underway, and Clark didn't work at the Daily Planet Im immediately thereafter. He was already Superman at this point, but he did not work at the Daily Planet at that time. He made his way there after a while, don't get me wrong, but it was not an immediate thing for him. So, I guess to kind of boil it all down, canon could be defined as things that aren't necessarily absolute, but the weight of history kind of supports them. But, 
there could be dramatic value in overturning at least a few of these things at least once in a while. The top level here that we're dealing with is mythos. These are elements of the Superman legend that are simply not up for grabs. You cannot change these things. Kal-El was rocketed to Earth from a dying planet called Krypton. He was found and then raised by Jonathan and Martha Kent. They brought him up with their social, moral, political, and spiritual values. The boy grew to manhood and became Superman. Yeah, other stuff fits in there too, but this is all just one example. I say all of that to say the concept of Kryptonians having never uh, visited Earth prior to Clark's ship, uh, ship's landing is very close to my dictionary definition of tradition. <clears throat> and in Smallville, specifically Relic, what we see is that, no, there is in fact an established history of Kryptonians before Clark paying little visits to Earth, going here on vacation, I guess. To me, it's actually very insightful that Goff and Miller ran with this particular story. As I said before, the concept of Jarrell and other Kryptonians visiting Earth and Jarrell specifically selecting the Kents to raise Clark are all issues that are going to be expanded upon in future seasons. Jarrell visiting Earth as a young man may be a break from tradition, but this wasn't done to make just this one episode and then forget about it. Goff, Miller, the writers, and the other showrunners all developed Kryptonians visiting Earth a lot in subsequent seasons. This is not small potatoes. This is all a really fucking long way of saying that I'll allow this change. Doesn't bother me at all. Speaking of changes, we get some insight into the history of the Luther family in Relic. Lachlan Luther, Lex's grandfather, is shown to be a petty thief and street thug running around in Smallville. The problem there is that Lex had always been told that the Luthers never set foot in Smallville until the day of the meteor shower when Lionel Luther went there to close some kind of a business deal. Now, there's a house of cards here. Doesn't take a whole lot to knock it over. Lionel says his parents died in the tenement fire, but from the outset, it's clear that Lex has his own suspicions. As with other things, this is a major issue for the season, and arguably for the series at large, at least as far as the Luthers are concerned. So keep an eye on this. This is going somewhere. Now, not everything about Relic is gold. For one thing, there's Mayor Tate. He's revealed to be Louise's killer. Clark unmasks him in, honestly, the most idiotic way possible. He somehow tricks Mayor Tate into believing that rather than that he's Clark, that he's, in fact, Jarrell's ghost. Now, people, Tate knew Clark. He'd met Clark. He wouldn't have been fooled. I could have bought it if Mayor Tate had never met Clark face-to-face -face before, but the exact execution of it just doesn't work for me. Now, as if that wasn't bad enough, Louise McCallum is every bit as vapid and superficial as Lana, maybe more so. Louise wants to divorce her husband, run off to Hollywood, and become a star. Now, we viewers are expected to view these as admirable desires, but if someone told you this in real life, you'd slap them upside the head. I mean, look, I can respect that people have dreams, 
but there's nothing honorable about divorcing someone just so you can chase after fame. The revelation, this revelation was meant to show that Louise is a dreamer with big aspirations, but she's, unfortunately for her, she's stuck in some shitty one-horse town like Smallville where nothing exciting ever happens. And we're supposed to feel pity for her. But it's hard to like, or even pity somebody who wants to run out on her responsibilities like that. And this ultimately has a negative impact on the way the viewer sees Jarrell. He's intentionally written with conflicts and struggles that parallel Clark's, not least of which involves loving a human woman. The problem, though, is that if you pretend Louise McCallum's last name is Hilton or, or Kardashian, you wouldn't have to change a damn thing about her character. That raises questions about just what the fuck Jarrell's malfunction is that he'd ever be attracted to a woman like that. And people, let's not forget that Louise McCallum cheated on her husband in this episode. Now, the writers clearly want us to see all of this as a good and honorable thing, but I'm sorry, I can't lower my standards that much. Now, yes, I realize that it's romantic in a literary sense to have a woman stuck in a small town while she dreams of adventure and reaching for the stars. The problem is that when achieving that goal requires adultery and then divorce, it's not romantic anymore. It's fucking shallow. Honestly, I gotta tell you, I shed not a tear when Louise was murdered. My only regret is that her poor widowed husband had to spend most of his life in prison because he married a superficial, starstruck bitch. Now, I gotta tell you, it's actually, it's kind of funny to me because this was an episode that I remember having a very high opinion of before I sat down to rewatch it for this retrospective, but I gotta tell you, the, the subplots related to Louise McCallum and Mayor Tate really fucking soiled this episode for me, so... <clears throat> Anyway, Magnetic, Episode 7. This is another standalone episode. Or a filler episode, as the hipster would-be screenwriters put it. Anyway, this is another character-out-of-character thing. A kook episode, as it were. Seth has magnetic powers, both in terms of his personality and in terms of being able to control metal objects. Apparently... Lana's the only interesting uh, chick in Smallville because, as Clark says... Seth Nelson asked her out. What did she say? She said yes so fast it gave me whiplash. Look, Clark, jealousy's a tough emotion. Dad, I'm not jealous. Uh, well, maybe a little bit. But, look, he asked her out on a date right in front of me. I just find it hard to believe she'd say yes. Clark... You made a really tough decision, son. You didn't want to put Lana in any more danger, but you can't have it both ways. Now, if you're not willing to go out with Lana, then she's perfectly free to go out with whoever she wants. So, Lana and Seth are an item, and Clark's not happy about it. It's jealousy, pretty much. Now, circumstances prove Clark's suspicions about Seth to be true, but that doesn't change the fact that his motives were mostly jealousy. Understand. Clark is the one who pulled the plug on his relationship with Lana back in Phoenix. She was always going to move on sooner or later, but 
This whole incident seemed to punch Clark right in the balls because he didn't seem to see it coming. At the end of the episode, Lana and Clark have a pretty fucking brutally honest conversation in, uh, in the barn. It's one of those few closing barn scenes where Lana expresses a fair and rational point of view. She says that she's not going to wait around for Clark forever. The day's going to come when she meets someone. If Clark's not ready to make his move with her, he needs to get ready for the day when she gets serious with somebody else. And that's good advice for Clark to hear. He needs to understand that other people won't put their lives on hold just because he gets cold feet all of a sudden. For once, Lana expresses a completely valid point of view where she's legitimately right. Don't get comfortable with this because it's a pretty fucking rare thing. Anyway, not all of this episode is fun and games, though. The subplot involving the murder of Lionel's parents is expanded upon. It becomes clear that the accident was no accident. It's also clear that the Luther grandparents' apartment was bombed somehow. And Lionel Luther seems awfully reluctant to pursue the guilty parties, even though he's now had more than enough resources to do so for quite some time. Now... Chloe's a pawn in all this. She's dug up a lot of shit about Lionel in order to get out from under his thumb. Lex wants everything she has. He needs her cooperation if he's going to find out the truth about what happened to his grandparents. And it takes the body of a retired Metropolis cop showing up in the morgue to make Chloe see Lex's point of view. Now, as a rule, Lex and Chloe haven't really had a whole lot to do with each other throughout the course of this TV series. Now, don't get me wrong, they've interacted on many occasions, but their relationship has never been central to Smallville. This is the time when that begins to change. For this season, if nothing else. In the end, Chloe needs Lex to watch her back, so she gives him her file on Morgan Edge, who just happens to have been Lionel Luther's closest childhood friend. Episode 8, Shattered. This is where shit gets real. Lex tracks down Morgan Edge, who confesses on video that he and Lionel arranged for the bombing of Lex's grandparents' apartment so that Lionel could use their life insurance policy to set up and establish Luther Corp. Now, you may remember that Lionel helpfully reminded Morgan Edge back in Phoenix that the statute of limitations for murder never expires. So... Obviously, this is what he was referring to. Lionel's a step ahead in the game, though. He's been slipping Mickeys into Lex's scotch for quite a while now, and that comes to fruition here. Lex is telling the absolute truth about Lionel and Edge murdering his grandparents, but he sure looks crazy, so before you can say one flew over the cuckoo's next, nest, Lex ends up in a loony bin. Obviously, big shit goes down in this episode, but... Less obviously, big shit is set up, too. Now, from the less obvious stuff, Lana gets smashed by a horse and winds up in the hospital. This is Smallville. People go in and out of the hospital all the time. Still, this is one hospital visit that'll pay off big time later on. This is not an incidental trip to the doctor's office that gets forgotten about overnight. 
Another thing, though, is Lex's halluc uh, hallucinations about his dead brother, Julian. During their showdown at Luthercorp Tower, Lionel says that he doesn't blame Lex for Julian's death because Lex didn't mean to hurt him. Odd thing to say, considering that back in Season 1, Episode number 16, Stray, Lex told Clark that his mother found Ju uh, Julian dead on the morning of his baptism. Lex told Clark that Julian had just stopped breathing, and then implies that the Luther family was never really the same after that. Something big is going on here. If you're following the show along with these retrospectives, I can't spoil ahead, but I also can't overemphasize how fucking big this is. But that's still a ways off. There are a lot of pissers in Shattered, not least of which being that Lana not only gets smashed in by a horse, but while she's recovering, she basically tells Clark to go piss up a rope and leave her alone from now on, because hanging out with him is hazardous to her health. Deeper themes and implications. Honestly, there's a lot to choose from here, but one obvious thing is how direct and no-nonsense Clark is once Chloe suggests that Lex could have been drugged as part of an inside job. Clark forcefully interrogates Darius, the crooked secu uh, security guard at Luther Manor. Clark then leaves out a trail of breadcrumbs so that he can ambush his own would-be assassin. He then follows the trail back to Morgan Edge. Clark's very direct and forceful. Maybe too much so. Would Superman use these same methods? Maybe... maybe not. Superman has a reputation. But teenage Clark doesn't have shit, so he has to throw his balls around as much as possible if he wants to get results. The issue here is less about Clark's methods and more about his drive to pursue the truth. Seeing Lana in the hospital is the last straw. Clark resolves to get to the bottom of this son of a bitch once and for all, and he does. He maybe has to bust a few heads along the way, but he eventually finds his man. Of course... Finding your man and getting your man aren't exactly the same thing as Clark finds out when Morgan beats the piss out of him with that kryptonite rosary. The biggest penny to drop in this episode, though, comes when Lex sees Clark use his powers to stop Edge's car. True, Lex was drugged completely out of his fucking mind, but he knows what he saw. People talk a lot about how uncontrollably dark Season 3 became. And, you know, to be honest, at times I can kind of see it. And to me, this episode, Shattered, here is where the darkness really began. Because there's literally no victory here. Morgan Edge is dead. Lex is in the nuthouse. Lana's in the hospital. Lionel's free, but his, his only heir is a nutball. And everything Clark did in this episode was all for nothing. It was a waste. Clark could have done absolutely nothing. He could have not lifted a single finger to help anybody. And things might not have worked out much differently. Nobody wins and shattered. Now, as heavy as that all is, things only get darker in Episode 9, Asylum. Lex's memory gets partially wiped. Conveniently, it only affects the past few weeks. Suffice it to say, characters on Smallville won't always be this lucky. But 
those are memory wipes for other days, I guess. So here, though, we get return engagements from Eric Summers from Season 1, Ian Randall from Season 2, and Van McNulty from right here in Season 3. They team up to take Clark out, and then they betray each other just one by one. I swear, it's like fucking Reservoir Dogs by the end. In fact, I think Eric's the only one who walks away from it. Meanwhile, Lana makes a new friend at the hospital. Adam Knight, a fellow patient. He's the first character on this show who doesn't immediately kowtow to Lana and all her bullshit. As we're going to see later, though, there's more to Adam than meets the eye. Because this is a TV show, and that's how you sustain drama. Anyway, so there's a welcome back party for Lana that's held at the Talon, and Martha ends up talking Clark into going. But Clark ends up not sticking around for too long because Lana told him to leave her the hell alone back in Shattered. So that kind of sucks. Anyway, Shattered and Asylum both are full of defeats and setbacks. Clark obviously would have liked to spend time with his friends, especially Lana, to help get back to normal, but first, he feels completely isolated from all of them as a result of everything that's happened. So he can't even draw upon the support network of his friends anymore. But second, as Clark watches Pete, Lana, and Chloe chatting with one another, you get the sense that Clark's starting to think he's maybe a curse for them. Lana got smashed by the horse, and Lex got served a case of deep-fried amnesia for lunch. However irrational it may seem, that fits in with a lot of Clark's feelings of self-loathing and guilt. And this is one of those times when logic and recent history are kind of on Clark's side. Deeper themes and implications. Ooh boy, this one's a doozy. Lex and Clark meet parallel fates in Asylum. For starters, at one point, they're both trapped in Belle Reve. True. Lex is there from a contrived diagnosis while Clark broke in and then got kidnapped, but still. There came points when neither of them could leave of his own free will. Second, they both got drugged. Clark by kryptonite, Lex by his meds. Then, they both got zapped by electricity and suffer loss for it. This is how Clark briefly lost his powers and how Lex permanently lost part of his memory. But the darkest part of the whole thing is that to reclaim his powers, Clark essentially threw the switch that robbed Lex of his memory. I mean, that's some dark shit. Worst of all, though, Clark and Lex's reunion <laughs> at the Luther Mansion. It's tough to know just how far back Lex's memory loss goes, at least at this juncture. We're told that it works out to seven weeks. If so, and considering that a month, yeah, about a month, takes place between Shattered and Asylum, that means Lex's memory runs out around the time of Episode 5, Perry. That assumes that Perry and subsequent episodes occurred on a weekly basis in Smallville time. But I think it works out well enough, so I'll ride with that. So from Lex's point of view, he hasn't been back from the island for very long. All he knows is he was in Belle Reve for a while because he had some sort of a nervous breakdown after being stranded on the desert island. And while he was in there, 
Clark came to visit him, and then Lex attacked him. In other words, Lex is carrying around a false sense of guilt and without any knowledge of how he's been absolutely victimized by his father. At the time of Perry, Lex regarded his father as his corporate mentor. They were on very good terms. Lex lost all of that. Under the circumstances, it makes sense that Clark keeps his mouth shut about conspiracies with Morgan Edge and murdered grandparents. Lex got off lucky this time. If he ever rediscovers the fact that Lionel murdered his own parents, who the fuck knows what Lionel might do to Lex? It's just too big a risk to take. This inadvertently makes Clark an accessory in Lex's victimization. And that's, uh, number one, something Clark is obviously aware of, and number two, he's obviously very unhappy with. He doesn't like that. Not one bit. As with Shattered, nobody wins here. Lex lost his memory, Clark failed to save his friend, and even Lionel lost something because he didn't know that Lex knew Clark's secret. But now, Lex can't tell him because, hey, mind wipes are a bitch that way. Speaking of which, Lionel's fixation on Clark arguably provides fodder for Lionel's character arc, not only for the rest of this season, but I would say probably for the next several uh, seasons worth of the show. So that's that. Anyway, I think we're done here. Stay tuned, I'll be right back after these messages. Sure is great to be back to, uh, from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a superman podcast.com. Is it .com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman, one half month at a time, every Thursday. 
at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. On May 30th, 2011, DC Comics announced the historic renumbering of all their superhero titles, and the internet broke in half. Critics and naysayers abounded. Confusion reigned across fandom. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. Not to mention the first reactions to the Supergirl costume. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it, flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, heaving. But then the books actually hit. And opinions... He likes it! He likes it! Opinions began to change. The New 52 Adventures of Superman is a monthly podcast where John Wilson, J. David Weider, and Michael Kaiser take a look at each of the adventures of Superman and his family of characters in Action Comics. You know the deal, Metropolis. Treat people right, or expect a visit from me. The Superman who appeared six months ago could hurdle skyscrapers and toss trucks around. Now it's faster, now it's stronger. How soon before it can't be stopped? Superboy. If resolving a situation for him is going to get me out from under these people once and for all, that's a small price to pay for freedom. Release the Superboy. Supergirl. Okay. Giant metal creatures. Falling from the sky. Speaking in clicks and beeps. Father would love this dream. And Superman. You could do so much good. We could do so much good. I am doing good, Lois. Clark's such a loner. Never really lets anyone get close to him. The new 52 Adventures of Superman. Available the first of every month on iTunes and at new52superman.libson.com. See, I'm back now, and I've got just a little bit of feedback to go through here. This email, this first email that I've uh, that, that I've gotten the hopper here, this is sent by my old friend, Fanboy MS Prime. The subject line is Big Book Report, The Unexplained. Dated September the 3rd, 2014, Fanboy MS Prime writes, Hey, Magnus, got one question involving Man of Steel beating Captain America, Winter Soldier. So, why didn't that get Superman a cartoon? I mean, the Hulk's popularity getting a boost from the Avengers got him his own animated series, so... Why not Superman? And I'm gonna put this email on pause and... Answer that. Uh, first and foremost, no one really knows for sure. Let's start there. 
One cannot go behind closed doors and figure out why certain corporate decisions are or are not being made. So, this is one of those things that we pretty much have to uh, speculate on, I guess is probably the way to put it. Now, my view of the matter, and I don't know if I've ever said this in a podcast or not, but my view of the matter is... I used to think that DC Comics, or at least the powers that be at DC Comics, they just didn't know what to do with Superman. There is this strange, I don't know, temptation, I guess, to want to put steer them in directions that they felt were traditional, I guess. And maybe the best example of what I'm talking about here is uh, Superman's Sucky Origin by Jeff Johns and uh, Gary Frankenstein. And just to look at it, it's basically Superman the movie. With a few nips and tucks here and there, it's basically Superman the movie. And that was pretty much of a piece with the post-Infinite Crisis Superman right about the time of the Jeff Johns Richard Donner run on Action Comics. It, it just felt like this is less and less looking like the Burn Age Superman that I at least had just come to love. It was looking a lot more like Superman the movie with a few, I don't know, uh, Silver Age elements thrown in, a few Bronze Age elements thrown in few Smallville elements thrown in, a few Superman the Animated Series elements thrown in, so on and so on. But I feel like you could fairly well say the primary influence was Superman the movie. And if we know nothing else, it's that what works in film doesn't necessarily always translate well to comics. But that's really neither here nor there. Point is, I think it would be accurate to say that the... Uh, that iteration of Superman was basically Superman the movie, more or less. And this whole idea of DC not really knowing what to do with Superman really starts there. Then you start getting into the New 52, though, and more and more the feeling I get is less that DC doesn't know what to do with Superman. It's that DC doesn't like Superman. Because I'm at a severe loss to explain why it is exactly that certain creative decisions with respect to Superman have been made. Uh, to me, in many cases, they are indefensible. And the, the common refrain in a lot of these things uh, that a lot of New 52 apologists always want to bring up are things like Superman's shaggy long hair post-reign of the Superman. And going a little bit more forward in time, things like the death of Clark Kent, or that electric uh, blue Superman uh, storyline. And here's the thing. Those ideas and those concepts, those were all stories. And there was really no fundamental change made to Superman as a character. The most drastic change that he underwent during any of that was uh, when his powers and his outfit changed during the uh, electric uh, I don't want to say saga, but the electric storyline, the electric era, whatever you want to call it. These were not meant to be permanent changes, number one. Number two, as these weren't permanent changes, they were really just 
stories. Number three, most of this stuff is completely aesthetic. Superman having shaggy hair fundamentally doesn't really change who he is and what he stands for. He just has shaggy hair now. As to the death of Clark Kent, again, it's just a story. It's not supposed to last forever. And indeed, it didn't. Now, people can love that story or they can hate it, but what they have to acknowledge is that this was... Number one, this was something that DC had been building to for quite a while up to that point. Mike Carlin or whoever was the editor by then, they built up towards this big showdown with Conduit that took place in the death of Clark Kent. Um, as to the electric uh, blue Superman, again, it was just, it, it, was, a, it was a story. These weren't uh, permanent changes. And the status quo that the Superman titles at the time were playing with wasn't fundamentally altered as a result of that storyline. Does that make sense? You compare all this to the New 52, where I'm not even comfortable calling that character Superman anymore, because he really doesn't have all that much, if anything, in common with Superman as he's traditionally been portrayed. And so, in fact, as I record all of this, we're actually um, preparing to uh, start a uh, storyline where Superman's been outed to the press by Lois Lane. He has no superpowers to speak of. And it's just this whole time, it's like, what the fuck am I reading? Even to look at him, he, he doesn't even look like Superman anymore. He looks more like Max Damage from uh, the Irredeemable comic book. And then later, the Incorruptible comic book. The Max Damage was the headlining character of Incorruptible. And so, that's just, you know, his look, and I don't know, It's that's just what it reminds me of. And so... All of this is my way of saying that I'm actually at a point now where I truly don't believe that somebody making the creative decisions at DC, I don't think they like Superman. There's something about Superman's powers or his look, um, his, his character, you know, this virtuous, selfless hero that uh, most of us respond to when we think of Superman. That's what I think. And so to kind of tie it all back to your question, why hasn't Superman gotten his own animated series? Honestly, I, that's what I think. Uh, I think that somebody at DCE simply does not want more Superman out there. They're fundamentally unwilling to sell Superman. Because when you think about it, Superman is kind of inseparable from the DC universe. But I, I, I just get the, this impression that they're not willing to do anything to promote Superman or do anything that increases his profile. And if you think about it, I mean, Man of Steel is happening by Hollywood. Uh, really, uh, DC Entertainment, DC Comics, they have no control over what does or does not happen with Superman, but they can control things like animated projects. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Superman's been pretty much absent from animation. Well, certainly absent from his own solo show ever since uh, Superman the Animated Series ended, absent from animation in general uh, since the end of uh, uh, Justice League Unlimited. And yeah, he had cameo appearances in The Batman and then also in uh, Brave and the Bold. All of these, though, are exceptions that prove the rule, and certainly these were not uh, Superman solo animated shows. And so that's truly what I think. I, I believe that somebody at DC entertainment or DC comics or somebody they don't like Superman 
and because and the reason I one of the reasons I believe this is because it feels like every time somebody cuts a loud fart, Batman gets his own animated show. I mean, how goddamn many Batman animated shows have there been in the last 10 years? I mean, there's been The Batman, there's been Brave and the Bold, there was that outsider thing that really wasn't The Outsiders, but was kind of The Outsiders, like Beware the Batman, or something like that. And I fully expect that there's probably going to be another one announced in the next two minutes. And why is it that Superman, a fundamentally more marketable character, one would think, hasn't had his own animated show in so long. Well, I think it's because somebody doesn't want it. It doesn't matter what people actually respond to. It doesn't matter what people are interested in buying. It doesn't matter what people are interested in watching. Some dickhead creative type who has the mojo at, at DCE fundamentally does not want this to happen. It's no more complicated than that. Because there's no way that Man of Steel does the type of uh, uh, business that it does at the box office, and then uh, and then somebody decides, well, that's not a that that's not a sufficient reason to give Superman his own film. I mean, let's just look at the basic numbers here. Man of Steel cost 225 million dollars to produce. Now, generally speaking, a, a film has got to uh, double its production cost in order to be said to be truly profitable. So multiply $225 million times two. That works out to $450 million, obviously. So Man of Steel grossed $291 in the United States. It grossed $377 million in the foreign markets. That brings the total worldwide gross up to $668 million. Now again, to have been truly profitable, Man of Steel would have needed to gross um, $450 million worldwide to be truly profitable. It exceeded the profitability threshold to the tune of $218 million. There's no way you can argue that Man of Steel did not make money. It was an extremely profitable film, just based on box office performance alone. We don't need to consider any other factors. Based strictly on the box office, Man of Steel was a huge success. So why doesn't Superman have his own animated series right now? There's my answer. Fundamentally, somebody does not want it. And, and if you think about the possibilities that Superman has in animation... A format where, at least theoretically, things like budget and whatnot are, are less of a concern. There, I mean, there there is unlimited creative potential to be had in a, a Superman animated series. And as a matter of fact, what that kind of reminds me of is this long, drawn-out conversation I had with John M. Wilson. It might have been the John M. Wilson shoot the shit show that I did ages ago, but he and I were spitballing ideas over how badass a uh, sort of pre-crisis oriented Superman show, animated show, would have been. And there's, and this is, I think, based primarily on how awesome Superman's uh, guest appearance on Brave and the Bold was. So why is it then that Superman doesn't have his own animated series after 10 successful seasons of Smallville, after an amazing run at the box office with Man of Steel and all these other factors? Well, 
look no further. So that's truly what I believe. So anyway, that's not a bad little way to spend about 10 minutes. So anyway, to get back into uh, Prime's email, though, he writes, Speaking of Superman, the day before I started writing this, I read most of the Reign of Doomsday storyline. Well, more just the Steel one-shot, the Superboy issue, and the Action Comics issues. Because I'd read the Justice League issue, really wasn't in the mood for Superman Batman Annual and fuck Dan DiDio's Outsiders run. His run on the Outsiders was pure crap. Anyway, I rather enjoyed the story, and it was a great send-off for the post-crisis era of Superman. Hell, the artist even made Alan Scott's wearing a human-sized Green Lantern battery cape not look utterly ridiculous. I'm not kidding. He literally wore a giant, human-sized Green Lantern battery with white sleeves and a cape with white on the outside, and the underside's green. Oh, and even has a handle that goes behind his head. From there, uh, Prime, attack, uh, he attached a uh, link to a picture of just how, uh, of just this monstrosity of a costume, and honestly, it, just to look at it, it's the artist in a million who could make this really look good. So, uh, yeah, and the thing of it is, he's not even exaggerating. There's really no way to describe it, apart from what Prime just did. There's really no way to describe it in a way that's uh, audio-friendly, but uh, go ahead and Google it. This is this is worth looking at. I mean, this, this is something else. Prime continues with, and also, why Doomsday is talking and with heroes is because the Eradicator's body got destroyed earlier in the story, so he's using Doomsday, Doomsday's physical form as a replacement. And I avoided, like, the plague, the David Goyer Action Comics 900 story, as that issue was part of Reign of the Doomsdays. Though I've taken some glee that more people know who the Martian Manhunter is than about the real-life event uh, Goyer used as the basis for his Superman tale. Not sure it says the best thing about me to enjoy Goyer's shocking story because uh, story become dated and the reason for it fade into obscurity. I want to put this email on pause and say, you know what, dude? A fucking men. Honestly, it felt like the only reason that Iranian protest thing even had any kind of traction in the United States media basically was issues related to the presidential election that was going on at the time and what this does or does not say about President Obama's foreign policy and all sorts of things that we probably don't need to get into on, on this podcast. What I will say, though, is that nobody's ever going to convince me that this wasn't Goyer going specifically for shock value. So, number one, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad that he fell on his face and all of that. Number two, I, I almost don't want to reduce whatever's going on in Iran as far as, you know, upheaval, disagreements over the way that their government should be organized, etc., etc. I don't want to reduce that in terms of importance as to how it relates to, you know, fiction. But it doesn't seem like it's too much of a news item anymore. So I don't know really what... To be honest with you, I never really knew a whole lot of what, about what, what was going on with that other than something-something opposition to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad and the way that he was running the government in Iran at the time. But too much else other than that, I really couldn't tell you. So I don't know if these if these were, say, pro-Democrat protests or, or, or what. I should assume so because, well, actually, I shouldn't assume anything, but whatever. Anyway, get back into Prime's email, though, he writes. Anyway, the Reign of the Doomsday story amused me, and I just wanted to get this off my chest before we get into the meat of the episode. And 
The Man of Steel and Cap 2 profit comparison gave me a chance to do that. First off, Von Daniken has gone to court for fraud and other things. The man also has backed down when Carl Sagan himself told Von Daniken to put up or shut up on his theories. Theories Va Von Daniken has gone back to... Uh, ha has gone back to what he said before now, that there isn't a famous scientist to call him out to his face on his bullshit. I'm going to put this email back on pause and say, uh, Prime, i got to tell you, man, um, I actually had not read... Number one, I hadn't read Von Daniken uh, make that uh, that sort of challenge that no big-name scientist had ever called him out before. And that number two, um, there's really sort of a limit here to my knowledge of Von Daniken's work. I mean, the obvious stuff, yeah, I think we all know about that. But I mean, he's just, he's not one of those uh, media figures that I spend a whole lot of time following. So obviously you do. I will defer to your expertise on this. So, uh, but I don't want you to think I'm ignoring your point the same time, though. So, anyway, get back into Prime's email. He says, Stitchin literally has no understanding of how to read Sumerian and just made shit up. You literally these days can look up and read all the Sumerian texts on Earth, and trust me, none of it matches Stitchin. So, what Chris said about them being liars is, without a doubt, or rather, without a shadow of a doubt, true on Von Daniken. On the other, he's a liar, or was, or, or was on his own reality, thinking that uh, he was translating something. He had no idea what it was. Either way, nothing he said was true. Not skipping out on the rest of the show, as it was interesting, but I really have nothing else to add to it. Signed, Fanboy Miss Prime. And dude, I say, you know what? Don't worry about it. I mean, number one, you gave me more than enough fodder for me to go on one of my fucking Superman rants that are apparently famous all across the internet. But number two, I just appreciate the fact that you're listening to the show, you're taking the time to write in, and uh, that you're... I assume, having fun with all of this, so thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to write in. Uh, this next email, we're skipping ahead of here a little bit, this next email is, the uh, subject line is, All Hail Magnus, dated October the 3rd, 2014, sent in by Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix, where he writes, Trentus, I've just finished listening to your entire run of shows, and I have to say that I've thoroughly enjoyed them. No, I don't agree with you on everything, but I can see where you're coming from. I'm especially enjoying your Smallville shows. Even though I'm not a fan, it's nice to hear a fan talk about what they like about the show. I'm also the kind of guy that likes to hear all sides of whatever topic, so your show works perfectly for me. One thing on your most recent show where you spoke about Jonathan Kent having a heart attack in Superman the movie. It is possible to have a heart attack so massive that you will be killed instantly. For example, my father was driving down, uh, was driving his uncle somewhere, and one minute the uncle was talking, the next he was dead. Even though my dad pulled over immediately and performed CPR until the uh, paramedics arrived, it was too late. That's what I believe uh, believed happened in the movie, and why Clark couldn't save his father, no matter how fast he was. Keep up the great work, even though your excellence makes me look like a piker, I'll be listening every week. Signed, Gene. So, number one, Gene, um, first of all, thank you very much for sending in the email. Really appreciate you taking the time, number one, to listen, number two, to respond, and number three, this is actually a really good point that you raise uh, concerning uh, the heart attack in Superman the movie. Now, this is one of those things where it's not really explicit 
really either way, you know, what's going on. You could read it that he just uh, collapses right then and there, or you could read uh, that it, it, it may have taken some time. I'm really not sure, but what I will say is that you've got a point. There is a sufficient amount of ambiguity there, such that if somebody wanted to interpret this as uh, uh, Jonathan Kent basically sort of dying on impact, so to speak, um, they can do so. And so uh, that's that's a, a fair interpretation. I, I respect it. I accept it. And uh, I, that's not saying I believe it myself, because I'm not sure that I do. But I will allow that there that there is room for interpretation on that. You're not just making stuff up. That is a completely valid and sort of kosher way of, uh, of uh, doing this. So, anyway. Next email. This is sent in by Terry Foster, dated October the 13th, 2014. Terry writes... Oh, sorry. The uh, subject line of this is actually... Big Book of Losers. Terry writes... Hello. I wasn't uh, going to write in on this episode, but when you brought up women's urinals, I have to tell you something funny. There was a building that I cleaned that actually had a, a urinal in the women's restroom. Laughing out loud, honestly, I think the restroom was used as a unisex uh, restroom. Oh. I do think that the women's urinals would work in places like China where they, where they go in a hole in the floor. <laughs> uh, signed, Terry Foster. <laughs> um... Terry, I must say, I did not know that. I didn't know that they had holes in the floor. So, um, this, uh, this is just one of those things that I've never actually seen a women's urinal, like, in person, because how would I? I mean, why would I be in a, in a women's room? But this is a, uh, an interesting point that you mentioned, and I don't know, that's, I, I honestly, I'm... I, I don't really understand the whole drive for a unisex bathroom. I just don't understand what the fuck that's about. Men need to have their own restroom. Women should have a separate restroom. There's nothing wrong with that. So I truly do not understand this whole idea of a uh, of a unisex restroom. I just think that's fucking idiotic. It's also a lawsuit waiting to happen, one would think. But I don't. What do I know? Anyway, next email. This is uh, the subject line is All Star Superman dated October the 13th, 2014, written by Mark Lax, my friend. And Mark writes, Hey Magnus, the all-star commentary with John Wilson was pretty spot on. I personally think this is not only one of the very best Superman stories, but also the only Grant Morrison story I ever truly loved. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, you know what, dude, I pretty much agree with every word of that. I'm not big on Grant Morrison's work in general, there's something about All-Star Superman that just kind of strikes my fanboy fancy. But, you know, I would say probably the majority of his other work really isn't my thing. There's just something about the way that he writes stories. I mean, I've read a decent chunk of his run, for example, on, on Batman. And I guess I just don't get where all the hype's coming from. You know, I don't really see what the hype with that story is. So, or at least that run, I should say. What the hype with that run is all about. And so, if other people enjoy it, you know what? Hey, that's fine. Certainly, I don't have the antipathy towards uh, Grant Morrison that a lot of other podcasters do. Not naming names. But some people really do not like uh, Grant Morrison. And so, I'm not picking on them, but I'm not completely willing to take their side either. So, I happen to think that All-Star Superman is just... That's a fucking phenomenal story. 
And it's actually one of those stories that I would love to see continued in, in some capacity or another. Probably never going to happen, but I just really dig it. So, anyway, to get back into Mark's email, though, he writes, While I always felt Morrison's writing was adequate at best, he really surprised me with this one. As far as Frank Quitely's art goes, I was also never a big fan, but as these issues progressed, I became very impressed with his Superman. I'm going to put the email back on Boston and say, you know what, dude, again, same friggin' thing. I started off not really being all that big on, um, on uh, Frank Quitely, uh, and it's specifically his take on Superman, but the more that series went on, the more it... I don't know, it just had... Sometimes in, in comics, you get these sort of weird, oddball sort of pairings of artist with writer where it's just perfect. And I would say that, like, a good example of that would be Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons on Watchmen. I really, it's not that Dave Gibbons is, you know, God amongst men when it comes to uh, comic books or art or anything like that, but there's something that happened. When he was on Watchmen, I have not seen that in any of his other work. He and Alan Moore were just in perfect sync with one another. And it, uh, it's just ex extremely powerful. And I'm actually prepared to, to say the same thing, really, about Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely on All-Star Superman. There's just something that happens in, the, in that book that they were absolutely firing on all the all their uh, all creative cylinders, but at the same time, at the on the same cylinders, they were completely on the same page, to mix my metaphors, uh, with one another. And it was just, again, it's just one of those strange little oddball pairings of writer and artist where they're completely in sync with each other, and I just love it. And it's a, again, it's a huge part of why I would love to see more all-star Superman, but uh, as I say, I don't know what the odds of that are. So, anyway. Get back into Mark's email, though. He writes, This story is what every Superman book should follow. It's definitely a Silver Age story for all intents and purposes, but it mix in, mixes in all the eras just enough to give us a truly unique take on the Man of Steel. This should be what the New 52 is all about. Not saying Grant Morrison should write all the Superman books, but this story had a pretty good grasp on the on the mythology. Just saying. Your pal, Mark Lax. And thank you, Mark. Number one, I, I, I really do agree with everything that you wrote there. But number two, I um, really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, first off, listen to the show, take the time to write in, let me know what you think. And um, I, I tend to agree with you, man. I, I, we're absolutely on the same page with that. So uh, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. So this, I think, is going to be the last. I've got so, much, so many emails that I need to go through here, but this one right here is probably going to be the last one for right now. Subject line is Killer Superman. Sent in by Gene Gene, the podcasting machine Hendrix, dated October the 14th, 2014. Gene writes, Great and Glorious Magnus. Your show with J. David Weeder on the Supergirl saga was very well done. As always, I don't know if I'm in the minority or what, but I didn't have a problem with Superman killing Zod in Man of Steel. I have my issues with the movie, but that wasn't one of them. I'd rather have, whoops, I would have rather it didn't uh, come to that, but I don't see any, any other choice he had. 
Along those lines, I hope that part of the next movie is Clark trying to deal with the ramifications of it, like Superman had to in the comics. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, I'm one of those people who thinks that Superman's rule against killing should not be an absolute. And probably the best example that I can think of as far as you know, proving my point and all of that actually relates to... Um, it actually relates to uh, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, where Superman was face-to-face with a threat so dangerous, so evil, so malevolent, it threatened existence. All of existence. There is literally nothing that Superman could have thrown at Mixus Pitalik and that story that was going to stop him, except for what killed him. And is that necessarily uh, the ideal outcome? No. But I hate to say it, Superman's sort of the guy that has to handle those types of situations. There's literally nobody else in the entire DC universe who's got Superman's intelligence or raw firepower. If he can't handle that problem, nobody can. And it had to be done. I mean, it's not pleasant had to be done. Now, where we need to draw the line on this is those individuals that the criminal justice system is perfectly capable of dealing with themselves. I speak of bank robbers, car thieves, purse snatchers, murderers, uh, gangsters, you know, basically, uh, or for that matter, white collar criminals, them as well. Basically anything that isn't super powered, or maybe for that matter, even things that are super powered and aren't necessarily world beaters. We've got a criminal justice uh, justice system that can that can process those types of individuals, ready, willing, able, and eager to do so. So that's fine. But for your bigger, more galactic, more I don't know, earth-beating, world-shaking, existence-ending type of uh, threats, it would be great if Superman can find a way to get by without having to uh, without having to uh, kill them. Unfortunately, though, it's just not always possible. Now, this is an ideal that Superman should aspire to, taking life, even hor- horrible life, like Mixus Pitalik and whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. That's not something that should be uppermost on Superman's list. Preserving life even terrible life, should be something that he places a premium on doing. But in those situations when he has truly no choice, I don't think he should lose a whole lot of sleep over it either. And honestly, I mean, I would say similar things about Batman. I mean, you know, for purse snatchers or the like, you know, Batman, I don't think he should bloody his hands on people like that. But, you know, how fucking many people does the Joker need to kill? I mean, dude, what does it take? You know, and for somebody like that, I think that somebody who's morally and psychologically and physically capable of doing the things that Batman does, he wouldn't think twice about uh, about killing somebody like the Joker. It would truly mean nothing to him. He would sleep like a baby that night, and that's just the way that I that I've always viewed it. And I realize that neither of these are, are are exactly popular opinions 
certainly I'm in the minority as far as I know, but that's just how I how I view it. I mean, I just I tend to view it in very pragmatic terms. You know, it would be wonderful if these characters didn't have to cross that line, but unfortunately, they don't live in a world where they get to make those decisions. So it would be great, but that's you know you can't you can't really help uh, help what the circumstances that you face in life. I mean, sometimes fate deals you a shitty hand. So what do you want to hear? Anyway, get back into uh, uh, Gene's email. Uh, he writes, speaking of the comics, I read this storyline back in. Uh, in back issues since my first Superman comic was Action Comics Annual Number 2 from 1989. So we were already well past that point, which is to say the Supergirl saga. I can't say that I had any problem with the event of killing the Phantom Zone criminals, but I think that's because I read about the aftermath of that before I read the actual event. Would I have had a different opinion if I had read it right off the stands? I really can't say. One thing I can say is that Superman, having grown up on a farm, would see the necessity of killing for protection. I'm not talking about uh, worrying about uh, wolves at the door or anything, but sometimes there are situations, like mad cow disease, where a farmer is forced to kill some of his, li his livestock in order to protect the others. If there existed any possibility at all that the Phantom Zone criminals could get their powers back and threaten another world, and Superman would have to look at it like killing infected animals to, pr to protect the vast majority. Signed, Gene. And, uh, sir, I completely agree with you on that. Uh, you and I are absolutely on the same page. And I just want to thank you again, by the way, for joining in on the extin uh, Extinction Level Event Part 6 show that we did for uh, Marvel's Fear Itself. Thank you very much. I just want to thank you publicly again for joining in because obviously you brought a... Uh, a knowledge and awareness of, of myth that I didn't even realize how ignorant I was until you brought it up. So um, anyway, thank you for the email. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. Uh, you're awesome, sir. Thank you very much. And I've got a, a zillion more emails. I've got like over 30 more emails that I still need to work through here. But this is, uh, yeah, or actually that's just on the first page. I've actually got even more on the next page. I can't even see. There are 30 emails just on this one page that I still need to work through, but obviously I think we've probably gotten enough for right now, so I think that's pretty much that. Now, as to uh, as to next week, I'm, I'm going to be starting up my uh, series about women in comics, starting with Alias, which is to say the comic book series about Jessica Jones. This is Alias numbers one through five, and so... Uh, just keep an ear out for that because uh, that's coming next week. So for right now, though, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S 
M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2 True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2 True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Italy.